If you would, turn with me to Luke's Gospel. Been working our way through this book. Not quite a year yet. And actually, today's passage marks the, uh, the beginning of the end. You ever uh, spend time in these... There are four biographies of Jesus uh, in the Bible, in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of them slows down at this week. This is the last week of Jesus' life. And so uh, it could rightly be said that everything else that has come before, and you don't really pick this up if you just, if you just read through one of them. Uh, you may not quite pick this up, but these books cover about three years of Jesus' life and ministry. But for most of that three years, you're really just hitting the high points. Uh, you are not, uh, you're, you're not seeing day in, day out detail. But when it comes to the last week of Jesus' life, each one of them, all four of them, slow down and focus on, uh, on this week. And so, um, I just want to set the scene for you before we, uh, before we read. It's Sunday, not today, but in the passage, I mean it is Sunday today, but also in the passage that we're reading. It's the first day of the week, of the Jewish Passover week, which was the, there were a number of holy days in the Jewish calendar, but the Passover was, uh, was the high holy day. And so probably about 200,000 people are filling Jerusalem at this point. And they're swelling the size of the city. There are people everywhere. Every room in the city would be full. The surrounding villages would be full. There were probably pilgrims camped out around the city. Uh, imagine, for instance, a big game weekend at Auburn or Tuscaloosa or race weekend at Talladega when these relatively small cities swell in size because of the event that's happening, right? When all of these people come into the city to worship. I mean, uh, watch football. Sorry. Deduce. Um... But that's what's, that's what's happening this week. That's what, that's what Jesus is, uh, is experiencing. Uh, and so Jerusalem, just to kind of get in your mind the geography, even of this passage today, Jerusalem sits on top of Mount Zion. It's not a, it's not a tall, tall mountain, but it, the, the temple and the, the city sit on top of this mountain ridge over here. Uh, and if you leave the city to the east and go across the Kidron Valley, uh, you come to the Mount of Olives or Olivet and um, Bethphage and Bethany are, are villages on top of that that you can actually look across the valley over to Jerusalem. Uh, and so that's where we're going to pick up the story in Luke 19. We're going to start reading in verse 28 down through 48. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the, in the rack in front of you, it should be page 878. And when he had said these things, that's Jesus, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. 
And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, the, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, assassinate him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is God's word. It's infallible and perfect, just like He is. And He gives it to us for our benefit. So let's pray and ask Him for His help in receiving it. Father, as we even see Jesus being very emotional, we pray that we would, uh, we would maybe even see Jesus for the first time. Uh, that uh, a passage or an occasion that, that may be familiar to some, this Palm Sunday as it's often called. God, maybe that we would see you, Jesus, for the first time as you are celebrated, but as you weep and as in holy anger you cleanse the temple. Would you bless, Lord, the reading and the hearing and the preaching of Your Word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You may have uh, caught the scenes this week. In case you're not an NFL person, I'm really not an NFL person, but um, the Kansas City Chiefs won their first Super Bowl last Sunday for the first time since 1969. Fact check, is that right? Okay. That's like the one NFL person in the room. Um... And so, anytime somebody wins an event like a Super Bowl or a World Series, what happens in their hometown? Parades, right? We have a, we have a parade to celebrate uh, the coming home of the heroes, so to speak. 
And this is exactly what's happening uh, as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Things are at a a fever pitch and Jesus' disciples are uh, ushering him into the city and uh, all of a sudden uh, they they burst out in in shouting, uh, quoting the Psalms, actually, Psalm 118. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, But that's what's happening. The people are celebrating the arrival of Jesus. And yet, unlike, uh, unlike Patrick Mahomes and his teammates did this week, uh, Jesus is not celebrating with the parade. Um, there's, a, there's deeper realities going on here. So I, I want you to see uh, at least two things about Jesus as we walk through this passage. First, I want you to see the authority of Jesus, Jesus' might. I also want you to see Jesus' compassion, His mercy. The might of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus. And then we're going to talk about where might and mercy meet. Okay? Let's talk about the might of Jesus. One thing that's very apparent, not just on this Sunday, but as we go through the week. So we're actually going to slow down with Luke. And we're going we're gonna to walk through these passages uh, all the way up to Easter Sunday. We're going to get to uh, the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So we're going to slow down with Luke. We're going to be spending, so let's see, February, March, and part of April working through Jesus' last week. But one thing that we see right at the very beginning is that Jesus is in complete control. Even something as minor a detail as securing a donkey uh, to go into the city on, and I, I can't really resist. There's, there's part of me that, like, I want to go up to, like, a car lot and hop in a Land Rover. And when the salesman comes over and says, Hey, what are you doing? I just say, I have need of it. <laughs> just see. Like, can, does this, will this work for me? Uh, of course not, right? But it works for Jesus. Jesus is in complete control. He tells his disciples, uh, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find a, a young donkey that nobody's ever sat on. And you're going to untie it. Uh, and you're going to bring it here. And the owners are going to ask you, as any owner rightly would, uh, hey, why are you untying our donkey? And you're just going to say the Lord has need of it. And that will be that. And that's exactly what happens. But even with the donkey, there's more going on, right? We, we read uh, the, the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 for our call to worship this morning. Uh, Zechariah's prophecy said that this king, this great Messiah king who was coming, he would, he would enter Jerusalem on a young donkey, humble and mounted on a, on a colt. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Um, which begs the question, why? Why, why a donkey? Uh, why not just walk into the city like everybody else? I mean, Jesus actually has spent most of his ministry walking, as far as we know. This is the first time that his mode of transportation is even mentioned. And it's because Jesus is self-consciously fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. He is, he is making a statement as he goes into Jerusalem. So you have this, and, and his disciples respond by also quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 118. They're shouting the words of Psalm 118, which would have talked about this regal king figure, right? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
So a very clear statement is being made both by Jesus and his followers as he draws near to Jerusalem. And and what's crazy is uh, what's crazy is that Jesus actually allows this to happen. Because if you've, if you've, and why that's crazy is if you've been with us, or if you've read anything about Jesus in the life of Jesus, you'll notice that this is the first moment that Jesus actually owns the praise of the crowd. Every moment up till now, when somebody has tried to identify Jesus as a Messiah, Jesus has told them to be quiet. Jesus, Jesus does not want to live into popular expectations, right? They were, they were envisioning a king who would conquer their, uh, their political enemy, Rome, who would set them free, right? This guy was going to ride in on a war horse and, and, and he was going to brandish the sword and that was it. And so up until this moment, Jesus has avoided any association with that kind of figure because Jesus says, that's not what I've come to do. But now, Jesus owns it. Not their expectation, but he owns, he owns the promises of the Old Testament. So as, as the people, as the crowds are gathering around Jesus in this parade, as they're throwing their cloaks on the ground before him in honor of him, and saying, he's here, this is him, the one we've been waiting for, Jesus is basically saying, I am. He's allowing it to happen. And you even see this uh, in, in the Pharisees' response. In verse 39, as this throng, as this parade moves towards the city, there's uh, Pharisees in the crowd. And they're, Jesus's, they're, they're religious leaders. They're Jesus' opponents. They're not big fans of Jesus. Uh, and so what they say is, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Tell your followers to stop doing this. Right? They're, in essence, they're saying, they're wrong. This is, this is not a title you deserve. And what does Jesus say? If these were silent, the very rocks would cry out. Jesus says, no, they're right. In fact, the, did you catch the irony of what Jesus said? Dead, inanimate objects have a better grasp of what's going on than you do. If these were silent, even inanimate stones, God would bring praise out of rocks. And yet you don't see it. You religious leaders are missing it. Which really moves us to the tragedy of the, of the celebration. It moves us from the might of Jesus to the mercy of Jesus because in the midst of all this joy and celebration and shouting, the very one who's at the center of the celebration is weeping. He's not a little misty. It's not just a couple of tears rolling down his cheeks. He's weeping. He's wailing in grief. Why? Because he knows. He knows that while all of the words that they're saying are right, and all of their actions are right, their hearts are not. He knows that even as they celebrate him on Sunday, they will cry out for his death, his execution on Friday. 
he knows that the heart of the crowd is fickle, that they are, at least the Pharisees are honest, that the crowds will eventually follow their leaders, their hearts will turn against Jesus. And even though they're singing that He's the King who's come to bring peace, He realizes that they're they're looking for the wrong kind of peace. Look at what He says in verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. You see, they're clamoring for peace, but it's the wrong kind. He's the king. He's come to bring peace, but not the peace that they're looking for. He's the Savior they need. He's just not the Savior that they want. And I wonder if we approach Jesus much the same way. But there are many things that we want... Right? They want their political problem fixed by taking away Rome. But He's come to fix their spiritual problem by taking away sin. And so, but they don't see that. They don't see their deep need. They don't see that Caesar's not the problem. They are. What would you say your core problem is? What would you say your greatest need is? Your spouse? Your kids? Troubles at work? Maybe your greatest problem is what other people have done to you. Maybe your greatest problem is that you haven't gotten all the opportunities that other people have. So you need... God to right all of those wrongs. But the way that you answer those questions is important because it determines how you'll approach Jesus. And while He may affect change in some of those areas, and while some of those areas truly are deep and troubling, we don't want to be like Jerusalem and miss our greatest need. Because if we don't understand our greatest need, then we will miss the day of Jesus' visitation. Jesus says, I'm here. This is the day of your visitation. God's mercy is visiting you now, but you won't see it. It's hidden from your eyes. And we also need to notice uh, another thing about Jesus' compassion here. He certainly knows what's going to happen to him. He's already told his disciples that three, at least three times we know of in the book. So he can see that. But what does he see that causes him to weep? It's not his own crucifixion. It's the judgment that God would bring against the city in another 40 years, within one generation. Because they are rejecting Jesus now. God will bring the Roman Emperor Titus down on the city. And after a bitter siege, it will fall. And men and women and children will be slaughtered in the streets. And not one stone will be left upon the other. So complete will be the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what causes Jesus to weep. 
he is grieved over what unbelief will do to this city. Which is why we sang that song this morning. Jesus wept over sin. Jesus wept over what sin can do in the human heart. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus is not stoic. That we have a, that we have a Jesus who feels. We have a Jesus who weeps and a Jesus who gets angry. And what He weeps over and gets angry for are not small things, petty things, but they are sin and sorrow. Might we share the same? Are we, are we grieved like Jesus is grieved? Are we grieved over our own sin? Are we grieved? Do we feel compassion for others? Are we moved by the losses and unbelief of others? And that brings us to the final act of the passage. And this is one where might and mercy meet. It's interesting that the first place Jesus goes when He comes into the city is the temple. Right? He, uh, in, in the ancient world, when the king returns from battle and he rides uh, peacefully into his city... The first place he would go would be to the palace. And here Jesus, the first place he goes is to the temple. But what he finds in the temple disturbs him. Now we need to describe this a little bit because it's, um, you know, sometimes we read a passage like this and we go, see, you're not supposed to sell things in church. That's not what this is about. Okay? What's happening in the temple is this. So, again, thousands of people from around the known world would come to Jerusalem. And if you're coming for Passover, you had to do a couple of things. You had to pay the temple tax, and you had to have sacrifices ready. Well, if you're coming from hundreds of miles away, you're coming from a place where you didn't have the currency for the temple tax. So you had to change your money out. And you didn't want to drag your sacrificial animals from hundreds of miles away. That would risk too much. And so you would need to buy animals for sacrifice there in Jerusalem. And so the problem is not that things are being sold or that things are being bought or that money's being exchanged. The problem is that they're happening in the temple. Which Jesus says, this quoting Isaiah 56, this is meant to be a house of prayer. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a street market, particularly in the Middle East or in South America or in Africa or in the Far East. Now, our street markets are a whole lot cleaner uh, than really anywhere else in the world. Have you ever been to a place where all the booths are set up right on top of each other and you're, they're selling animals and other things that would make your nasal passages curl up or close? Um, I've had to just own the fact that as a, as a man I have a sensitive sense of smell. So I can, so I can tell you, because I've been in street markets like that, uh, that between the body odor and the animal noise, worship is the last thing on my mind. Right? Praising God, uh, being with God, that's not happening in a market. Okay? But 
the religious leaders have set up this market for their own benefit in the temple, especially in the the outer court of the temple, which is the only place that Gentiles, non-Jews, could worship. And so they're so they're keeping people. Not only are they benefiting off of uh, off of poor people, probably, uh, but they're making it impossible for people to draw near to God. And so Jesus comes in, and this is where we see the holy anger of God. He cleanses them out. Right? Luke doesn't give us a lot of details. The other gospel writers supply some more. But he makes a whip. He chases the animals out. He flips over tables, pours money on the ground. Jesus is angry. And so we see Jesus' might. But how is this compassion? Where is his mercy in this? Well, I want you to notice, what what does Jesus replace all of that activity with? What does he replace all that activity with? Look at verses 47. Look at verse 47. It says, after he cleanses it out, and he says, you've made it a den of robbers. Now, let's actually, let's stop for just a second. I want to go back and cover that. Den of robbers. He's quoting Jeremiah 7. Zach read it earlier in the confession of sin. This is an exact quote from Jeremiah. What does that mean, you've made it a den of robbers? Well, Jeremiah tells us that what the people were doing is that they were sinning in all kinds of ways. And they were worshiping other gods, and then they'd run inside the temple, and they'd make their sacrifices and say, We're good! So this place where you were supposed to meet with God through sacrifice, they had turned into just kind of a religious machine. And they were saying, man, we can do whatever we want out there. As soon as we come into the temple, we're covered. Because we've got the temple. And what Jeremiah told uh, his contemporaries was, not for long you don't. Not for long. And so Jesus, channeling Jeremiah, cleanses the temple. He purges the temple. But it's more than that. He doesn't just cleanse the temple. It says in verse 47, He was teaching daily in the temple. What does Jesus replace all of that dead religious activity with? He replaces it with Himself. Jesus is not purifying temple worship. He's doing away with it. Jesus is not uh, reforming the temple. He's replacing the temple. And that begins to make sense when you think about what, what was the temple for? Right? If, and and if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you've read any parts of the Bible, if you're familiar at all, the temple was where you met God. It was actually God's dwelling place on earth. Right? It was the place where heaven and earth met. But in order to come into God's presence, you had to bring a sacrifice. Actually, you had to bring sacrifices. That was, how, that, was, that was how you interacted with God in His temple. But here comes Jesus. And He shuts the temple down. He chases out the sacrificial animals. And what He's saying is, you don't need the temple anymore. I'm here. All those sacrifices that would bring you into God's presence, that's me. I am the sacrifice that will bring you in to God's presence. And so Jesus cleanses out the temple, not just in an an act of angry might, but also in an act of saving mercy. 
He is the one, and really I would say the only one, in whom mercy and might meet. And even as Jesus does that, He's calling us to Himself. Even as He weeps over Jerusalem and cleanses out the temple, He's saying, come to Me. Right? Jesus, Jesus is forcing a decision. The time for the decision has come. Right? No more are we doing anything in the dark. Jesus is out in public. He's making a, he has thrown the gauntlet down for the religious leaders. And what is their response? Execute him. Kill him. How can we kill Jesus? And that will be the tension that drives this last week of Jesus' life. But right now, what I want us to see is this, is this decision that's being forced. That Jesus is making, making a very clear statement of who He is. Don't miss the day of visitation. Don't overlook Jesus' mercy. Come to Him and be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're, uh, we're very thankful that You're no stoic, that You are not apathetic to our cares and concerns. In fact, that we see in You what real anger should look like. Indignation over abuse. Indignation over dead religion. Tears of grief over lost sinners. Oh Lord, would you take these words and would you bring them home to our hearts that we would see your might and that we would see your mercy and that we would run away from empty sacrifices and dead religion and run to You, the only Savior of our souls. And in running to You, that we would have that same compassion. That we would long for others to know Your grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.